A note before we begin. Today's episode discusses incidents of forced and coerced sterilizations. This may be difficult content for some. In September 2020, Don Wooten, a former nurse at the Irwin County Detention Center in Osceola, Georgia, filed a whistleblower complaint. In it, she alleged that there was a total absence of COVID-19 safety measures. Further, Wooten alleged doctors at the center performed hysterectomies on detainees at alarmingly high rates. When speaking about one particular doctor, Wooten said, and I quote, Everybody he sees has a hysterectomy, end quote. In addition, she reported physicians conducted these surgical sterilization procedures without proper informed consent. Her complaint noted that non-Spanish-speaking nurses used Google Translate to convert materials from English into Spanish. Other sources indicate that when detainees asked authorities why doctors insisted on sterilizing them, Doctors, nurses, and officers presented them with a variety of answers. This is the latest example of core sterilization practices targeted at poor and minority communities in the U.S., a practice that is directly linked to the history and legacy of eugenics. Today's episode will explore the history of forced sterilization practices, while also tracing reproductive justice activists' efforts to end these coercive practices and policies. Welcome to our podcast, A Step Toward Justice. I am Dr. Justina Licata, and I'm a historian and professor. My research and teaching focus on late 20th century U.S. social policies, feminism, and reproductive justice. And I'm Isabel Stevens, a history and theater major. We are researching, writing, and recording this podcast at Randolph College in Lynchburg, Virginia, as part of the summer research program. In this six-episode series, we will be exploring the topic of reproductive justice and issues relating to it, such as abortion, eugenics, scientific and medical racism, and the LGBTQ community and the disability community. Please make sure to tune in every Wednesday, as new episodes will be available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. In this episode, we will focus on the right to have a child, a central principle of the reproductive justice framework. Last September, when news outlets across the country reported on Don Wooten's whistleblower complaint, much of the nationwide discussion focused on her allegations of forced hysterectomies. While Wooten's testimony was horrifying, for many it was not surprising. The U.S. has a long history of forced and coercive sterilization practices often targeted at poor communities of color. Today's episode will focus on that history, while also considering the ways reproductive justice activists have shed light on these coercive and oppressive policies and actions. So Isabel, let's pause here before we really get into the bulk of this episode and and talk a little bit about why we chose to have an episode dedicated to the history of sterilization as part of this series. Well, since this is your episode, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure, yes. So as you know, I was pretty adamant that I wanted to incorporate something that was specifically about sterilization. And admittedly, it's partially because my research is very much 
part of this long history, right? So my research focuses on Norplant, which you're going to hear about at the end of this episode, which is a contraceptive device that was used to coercively sterilize mostly people of color. And so that was kind of my entrance into this history. Norplant controversy happened in the 90s. And so I almost had like this backwards approach, right? I was looking at really rather contemporary forms of sterilization. And then that slowly led me to kind of go back in time, right? So seeing incidents of sterilization throughout the 20th century, and then seeing the origins of the eugenics movement in the second half of the 19th century. Also, one of the things that really brought me to learn more about reproductive justice was the ways that this movement actually incorporated this history and this issue in ways that the reproductive rights movement completely ignored it. Um, As you saw in a previous episode, we discussed a little bit about the uh, late 19th, early 20th century feminist movement and talked a little bit about how that movement wasn't as inclusive. So I think analyzing the history of sterilizations and the right to not have a child, which is one of the principles um, of the reproductive justice movement, analyzing that history that is so often not talked about is really important. I could not agree with you more. And I also think it really relates to your episode that focuses on scientific and medical racism, right? This is part of that umbrella kind of concept, right? The ways that medicine has been used to oppress um, particularly people of color in this country. Yes, great. All right, shall we shall we get back to the episode? Yeah. Great. To begin our examination of the history of forced sterilizations, we must trace the origins of the eugenics movement. English scientist Sir Francis Galton popularized the concept of eugenics after his cousin, Charles Darwin, published his groundbreaking work, The Origins of Species, in 1859. Galton applied Darwin's theories of evolution to rules of heredity. He argued that intellectual capacity was inherited in the same way physical attributes were passed from parent to child. Therefore, he argued that the human race could be drastically improved in just a few generations through controlled breeding. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Scientists and politicians viewed eugenics as a legitimate science dedicated to improving the human race. Eugenicists argued for both positive and negative eugenics. Positive eugenics called for the breeding of individuals deemed superior to encourage the natural elimination of inferior beings. In the early 20th century, 24 states passed legislation outlawing marriages between people thought to be genetically flawed. This constructed category included quote, imbeciles, paupers, drunkards, criminals, and the feeble-minded, end quote. Conversely, negative eugenics advocated for the use of compulsory sterilization practices to prevent people deemed unfit from procreating. Many eugenicists considered the sterilizations of individuals marked unfit to be a humane act. Doctors considered the medical procedure to be safe, simple, and nearly painless. The state and the medical community celebrated doctors performing the surgical sterilizations for preventing the births of individuals who would be, quote, burdens upon society. In 1927, the U.S. Supreme Court's landmark Buck v. Bell decision ruled that compulsory sterilizations were constitutional. 
In this decision, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes asserted that, quote, three generations of imbeciles is enough, end quote. Here he employed eugenicist rhetoric to justify the state-sanctioned sterilization of the plaintiff, Carrie Buck, a poor white institutionalized woman, as well as any individual deemed feeble-minded and unfit for reproduction. At the time of the case, Carrie Buck had barely reached her 20s, but she had already lived an incredibly difficult life. Buck was born in 1906 in Charlottesville, Virginia. Shortly after her birth, Carrie Buck's mother, Emma, became a single parent, which made it nearly impossible for her to support her family. In an effort to regain stability, Emma began relations with other men, resulting in two additional children, compounding her financial struggles. When Carrie was three or four years old, she was taken away from her mother and placed with foster parents John and Alice Dobbs. Without her children, Emma Buck continued to struggle. In 1920, a few years after her children were taken from her, she was admitted to the Virginia Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded after being charged with prostitution or vagrancy. The sources are a bit unclear about the specifics. Either way, a judge ruled that Emma was feeble-minded without conducting any intelligence testing. In the meantime, Mr. and Mrs. Dobbs, who already had their own biological daughter, did not treat Carrie like a member of the family. In fact, she was treated more like a servant than a child. The Dobbs even took her out of school early, likely so she could take on more household responsibilities and act as a servant for the Dobbs' paying neighbors. It is important to note that Carrie's school records demonstrate that she had no intellectual disabilities, and her last teacher indicated that she was, quote, very good, both in her manners and her studies. When Carrie was still a teenager, the Dobbs's nephew raped her, which resulted in a pregnancy. At the time, premarital pregnancies were highly stigmatized. This led her foster parents to petition to have Carrie institutionalized with her mother at the Virginia Colony. They argued that she was also feeble-minded. Despite her school records disputing those claims, her unwanted pregnancy and the national panic over feeble-mindedness, which was linked to the rise of the eugenics movement, led a judge to commit Carrie to the colony in 1924. She was just 17 years old. Two months after her arrival, Dr. Albert Pretty identified Carrie as an ideal candidate for compulsory sterilization. At the time of Carrie's arrival, Dr. Pretty, an enthusiastic proponent of eugenics, was the superintendent of the Virginia Colony. Pretty advocated for what he called the clearinghouse model, in which women identified as hereditary defectives would be sent to an institution like the Virginia Colony for, and I quote, educational, industrial, and moral training, end quote, and to be sterilized. Following their procedures, they would be released back into the public. As the colony's superintendent, Pretty implemented his aggressive sterilization tactics even before the state of Virginia authorized that practice. This got him into trouble, but instead of deterring him from continuing to sterilize patients, the trouble amplified his desire to enact pro-eugenics laws. First, he lobbied for a bill that would authorize the sterilization of inmates at state's institutions. Following that legislative victory, Pretty began to build a legal case that would challenge the constitutionality of that very bill. Why would he do this, you ask? If the Supreme Court supported the Virginia bill, 
It would allow states across the U.S. to implement aggressive sterilization practices, ultimately pushing the eugenics agenda forward. To ensure that the case would find the law constitutional, Pretty was on the hunt for the perfect sterilization candidate, and he landed upon Carrie Buck. What made Carrie Pretty's ideal candidate? First, both she and her mother had been identified as feeble-minded, demonstrating intelligence deficiency in her family. Additionally, Pretty used Carrie's premarital pregnancy to associate her with sexual deviance. Lastly, her young age meant that she still had many childbearing years ahead of her. Therefore, Pretty argued that sterilizing her would allow Carrie to re-enter society much earlier. For these reasons, Carrie's sterilization procedure was easily approved. This approval allowed Pretty, along with some of his fellow eugenicists, to arrange Carrie's legal appeal. Because Pretty and his colleagues were in support of the sterilization law, her legal defense was essentially a farce that led the Supreme Court to affirm the constitutionality of the Virginia sterilization law. On October 19, 1927, Carrie Buck was surgically sterilized at the Virginia colony. As Isabel and I mention at the top of every episode, we are recording this podcast from Randolph College in Lynchburg, Virginia, which is just about a 12-minute drive from the Virginia colony. The colony officially stopped caring for patients in June of 2020, but the state is still trying to figure out what to do with the rather large campus. A couple of weeks ago, Isabel and I visited the campus and the colony cemetery. We walked through the grounds with two other Randolph history students, Tommy McGinnis and Josh Belovko, and historian and professor Gerard Shureko. I would like to play some of the discussions we had as we walked through the colony now. We started our conversation at the historical marker at the entrance of the colony. Before I read the inscription on the marker, I do want to note that some of the language in the text is outdated and inappropriate. The marker reads, Established in 1910 as the Virginia State Epileptic Colony, the center admitted its first patients in May 1911. The facility originally served persons with epilepsy and began accepting individuals with mental retardation in 1913 due to the nation's emphasis in the mid-1950s on mental retardation. A number of new training and developmental programs for individuals with mental retardation were developed here. The facility has undergone several name changes and became known as the Central Virginia Training Center in 1983. The campus also contains a cemetery and a number of early 20th century colonial revival buildings. To begin our conversation about what this sign says and the importance of the language in the sign, Dr. Shereko begins. Talk about the parts of the sign that sort of stand out. 2002 isn't all that long ago, yet it is. It's a long time yeah, ago. It's 19 years ago. So this wasn't put up in the 60s. This was put up in 2002. First thing, mental retardation. Now, that maybe did they write the time? Um, or did they write it meaning the 1950s? Or were they writing that in 2002? Because that's what people would say. So what was the language that you, didn't, you, know, you thought was old? Here, Josh jumps into the conversation. Phrase that I... Um, don't really see as proper anymore. Um, I think medical terminology has evolved in a sense where we don't really use that kind of language. Um, So it's a little problematic for me seeing that. 
A bit later in our conversation, Dr. Shreko points out the very important fact that Carrie Buck is not even mentioned on this sign. And the most important thing that happened here, because it went to a Supreme Court case, is it must be There's no mention of the, of the Buck case. Which is crazy. Yeah. It is crazy. That is the reason that this place is national history, not just Virginia history or local history. It's national history. Because what happened to Carrie Buck changed what happened across this country in terms of sterilization laws. Absolutely. And when we drive around the campus, if there's security guards there, just tell them who we are. And and if they say you can't be here, I say, well, we would at least like to see the cemetery. As I mentioned a bit earlier, the colony had stopped taking patients about one year before we had this trip to the campus. And It's interesting to walk around because there isn't many people around. There are a few security guards, but it is a massive campus showing the amount of people that really were in and out of this institution, both as patients, but also as employees. It was a big part of this community up until June 2020. Well, at this point, we decided to move on and walk around the campus and we slowly made our way to the cemetery. It was really a beautiful day when we visited the campus. It was crisp blue skies and big puffy clouds. And as we walked up to the cemetery, it was it was quite lovely. It was serene and quiet and peaceful. The cemetery is kind of on this hillside. It's pretty sprawling and it's broken up into um, a couple different sections and is organized by the death date. So as you move through the lines of the gravestones, which sit in the ground, you notice that it's in chronological order. And this made us realize that we might be able to find Emma Buck, Carrie's mother's grave, because we knew she had died at the colony. So we made our way and followed the dates. And on the very last edge, closest to this wooded area, we stumbled upon Emma Buck's grave, which was really monumental and While the signage didn't mention Carrie, it was exciting to see that this existed here and could be a space to memorialize what happened here and how this place is a part of an important and horrifying history of sterilizations in this country. So now I want to play you a bit of the conversation we had just standing looking at Emma Buck's gravesite. And so for us, this is a very significant moment, a very significant marker. But I wonder how many people really have ever stopped here. I mean, it's only in recent times we look back on these issues and say, what did we do um, as Americans? You know, what did we do to people? And of course, even the idea of, of putting people in these kind of institutions. Now, sometimes people who are, are, have severe disabilities need round-the-clock care, but we have a very different view of how, how many people need that kind of care, never mind that they need to be you know, taken care of, meaning sterilized. And so mm. this is pretty amazing. This is very amazing that we're standing right here. Um, not a famous person in a sort of standard sense, but very famous for that case. So. And is 
not by name, but is mentioned in that very powerful statement, you know, three, three generations of imbeciles is enough, Mm -hmm. right? She is the first of which he was referring to. It's, Mm -hmm. yeah, it feels very powerful to stand right here. Here, Tommy adds to Dr. Schrako and I's comments. To me, it's just defeating yet, I guess this is how history is in a sense that the only way that we even know about this story and these names are the ones that are relevant to us because obviously these types of things happen to other families and other people, but it was a test case. I mean, pretty picked up the lawyer. Like, sadly, to know their names, we have to give credit to these horrible people. You know what I'm saying? And it's it, it gives you that mixed emotion as you're standing here. Like, the only reason why we know about it is because of their fates and how their fates were decided by people that just had more control over other people's bodies. And I think that rolls us into where we are kind of today. So it, it's just scary how we're seeing history repeating itself, but in different ways. Here, Tommy so beautifully articulates Carrie Buck's legacy and connection to the history of forced sterilizations in this country, and in doing so, really makes a connection to the reproductive justice movement by centering the concept of bodily autonomy. Later in our conversation, Josh commented on the fact that in the cemetery, just like the historical marker, there was no mention of Carrie Buck, the case, or Emma Buck's connection to this larger sterilization case. There's also no signage uh, to the case um, in this area, so um, it's almost like it's being hidden, and I think uh, it's about time that that story is shared with more people. I completely agree with Josh's sentiment here. Before I return us to the narration portions of this episode, I wanted to pause here to thank Josh, Tommy, and Dr. Shreko for contributing to this episode and for the really wonderful conversations we had as we walked through the Virginia colony. Following the Buck v. Bell case, eugenics policy grew throughout the U.S. Some white feminists, including Margaret Sanger, also contributed to the eugenics movement. In the early 1900s, Margaret Sanger was a leading women's activist arguing for the mass creation and distribution of birth control. But following the First World War, her political activism around birth control moved away from the feminist approach and towards eugenic theories. Instead of speaking about the ways contraceptives empowered women, Singer promoted racial betterment through the increased use of birth control methods. Singer employed pro-eugenics rhetoric to argue that the distribution of contraceptives would serve the nation's interests. In her 1922 book, The Pivot of Civilizations, in which she asserts that birth control was that pivot, Singer argued that procreation amongst the unfit was already creating a population dominated by denigrates. She argued, and I quote, Society at large is breeding an ever-increasing army of undersized, stunted, and dehumanized slaves. That the vicious circle of mental and physical defect, delinquency, and beggary is encouraged by the unseeing and unthinking sentimentality of our age to populate asylum, hospital, and prison, end quote. 
To rectify this issue, Sanger advocated for the use of negative eugenic tactics targeted at African-American populations. As the honorary chairman of the Birth Control Federation of America's board, which is more commonly known as Planned Parenthood, Sanger promoted the establishment of the Negro Project in the late 1930s. This initiative pushed to educate African Americans on how to manage their fertility in an effort to decrease population growth amongst the black community. The project's proposal argued, and I quote, The massive Negroes, particularly in the South, still breed carelessly and disastrously, with the result that the increase among Negroes, even more than among whites, is from the portion of the population least intelligent and fit and least able to rear children properly. It is clear racist beliefs about African Americans motivated the project. Historians have also shown that African American women wanted access to birth control methods because they needed effective ways to manage their fertility. But the project's paternalistic approach to the contraceptive's distribution made it more harmful than helpful. Further, it cemented the use of sterilization practices as a means of controlling poor communities of color. By the 1940s, scholars had invalidated eugenics, demonstrating it was both faulty science and a justification for racist policies. Moreover, the Nazis' use of eugenic theories to warrant the atrocities performed during the Holocaust led scientists and government officials to distance themselves from eugenicists. Following World War II, although science and political leaders no longer used the term eugenics, under the guise of population control and family planning, some state eugenics boards and federal agencies continued to forcibly, surgically sterilize men and women. Poor populations of color were often the target of these sterilization practices. Later in the 20th century, the population control movement, which advocated for the use of sterilizations to minimize additional population growth, inspired the Indian Health Service to fund a sterilization campaign. The Indian Health Service, which is also called the IHS, is the federal agency responsible for providing Native people living on reservations with free health care. It was created to aid Native communities ravaged by centuries of violent oppressions, but it often applied controls on Native people's personal sovereignties. In the 1960s and 1970s, after the agency encouraged IHS healthcare providers to permanently sterilize their patients, the IHS performed surgical sterilizations on Native women at alarmingly high rates, and often without proper informed consent. Although centuries of genocide had already depleted Native populations, the IHS claimed that their actions were warranted because Native women were having about twice as many children as the average white woman. Native activists conducted a study revealing that by 1975, the IHS had sterilized 25,000 Native women. Pressure from Native peoples forced Congress to oversee a formal investigation of the IHS and its sterilization policies. The investigation confirmed that many IHS personnel were not complying with proper informed consent regulations, including oral discussions, informative documents, and required waiting periods before procedures. In response to the investigation, Congress passed the Indian Health Care Improvement Act in 1976 which gave tribes the right to chair and control their IHS programs. While this act had some success, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare 
did not audit the IHS programs, making their act virtually unenforceable. In the final decades of the 20th century, government entities and non-governmental organizations used long-acting reversible contraceptives, also known as LARCs, to coercively and forcibly sterilize poor people of color. This meant that while forced surgical sterilizations were less likely, sterilization practices persisted. Because LARCs are provider-controlled contraceptives, to stop using the drug, patients must rely on a healthcare practitioner to remove the birth control device. By taking the control away from the patient, LARCs can be used as a tool of sterilization. While this may sound like the plot of a science fiction novel, the oppressive use of LARCs is a reality. In the early 1990s, state lawmakers, county judges, city officials, and nonprofit organizations used Norplant, the first subdermal implantable contraceptive device, to coercively sterilize poor and minority individuals. The Norplant device consisted of six silicone rubber rods filled with a man-made hormone. When inserted under the skin of a patient's inner upper arm, Norplant prevented pregnancies for up to five years. Quickly following the FDA's approval of the birth control method in December 1990, a California county judge ordered a woman to use Norplant as part of her probation agreement. State lawmakers in several states across the country proposed programs that would pay welfare recipients additional monetary benefits to use Norplant and in an effort to decrease the city's high teenage pregnancy rates, Baltimore's health commissioner implemented a program in which health clinics in public schools could prescribe Norplant to their students. My colleague, Keisha Burke, actually has a connection to this history of Norplant and the way the drug was used to coercively sterilize, particularly people of color. So I want to play a bit of an interview we did with her regarding this history. So I got involved as an intern when I was in college, kind of got fast-tracked into this program that was technically intended for um, pre-med students. In that program, I was probably the only communication person. Uh, I had a communication background. That was my major in college. It was myself and another young Black lady from California. I'm trying to remember if there was a Black guy. I think that there was. And then the rest of the cohort was white. Right. Um, so I would I wanna I wanna say that, you know, so this was program between Emory University, the CDC, and in Atlanta Grady Memorial Hospital. So of course the CDC's um purpose in the program was to teach um or to make sure that we were passing on information about safe sex practices. Um this was still like we were still in the end, not end, but right. Um, at the AIDS, you know, epidemic, you know, sexual practices was the big thing for them. Uh, for Emory, however, we were taught how to implant Norplant. And we were taught about all of its benefits and how, you know, women would not have to think about it for months on end and ability for freedom. And then but then the part that stuck out to me is that we were targeting low-income neighborhoods. And so we were, again, supposedly doing good because how could these women take care of their, their children? It sounds so horrible when I think about it now. But I remember 
that was the social scenario that we were given. And um, what was interesting is that me and the other Black young lady, we were assigned to go to the Y in a certain neighborhood, right, in a low-income neighborhood. And we were to, of course, you know, teach the young people about safe sex practices as part of the program. Um, and then the clinics that we would uh, give out the Norplant was also the free clinics or the, you know, the sliding scale cl clinics, the one that was connected to Grady Hospital. Again, low income. When I first heard Keisha talk about this internship and this experience, she said that it took her many years to recognize the ways that this program was oppressive and particularly reproductively oppressive and targeted at communities of color and poor communities. And she mentioned that reading reproductive justice scholar Dorothy Roberts' book, Killing the Black Body, helped her really recognize this fact. Because they're always going to position it in a way that is so-called positive, right? That's going to be the spin. I, I mean, like I said, it happened to me. And the spin was, oh, you're doing something good for the community. And you realize, no, I wasn't. <laughs> but I didn't have the right, I didn't understand necessarily from, you know, problematizing. And you have to problematize so that you can come up with solutions. Before I get back to telling you a bit more about Norplant and the ways reproductive justice activists organize campaigns to end these coercive practices, I'd like to pause and thank Keisha Burke so much for taking time to talk to us about her experience with the contraceptive device. In addition to all of these incidents, the IHS also aggressively prescribed Norplant to people living on reservations. This was particularly alarming because Native populations were at high risk for health issues that contradicted Norplant's use. The contraceptive implant was unsafe for women living with acute liver disease, non-cancerous and cancerous liver tumors, unexplained vaginal bleeding, breast cancer, and blood clots in legs. Moreover, any woman on Norplant with diabetes or high blood pressure could be at risk and required frequent monitoring. Because Native women suffer from many of these issues at higher rates than other populations, Norplant was a poor choice of birth control for much of the population the IHS treated. Like the activists in the 1970s who discovered the IHS's high sterilization rates, Indigenous reproductive justice activists swiftly built a campaign to disseminate accurate information about Norplant to potential Native patients and to call on the IHS to change its Norplant prescribing procedures. Further, Native reproductive justice activists worked alongside other activists across the country to shed light on and overturn coercive policies associated with the birth control device. Ultimately, their work contributed to Norplant's removal from the American market in 2002, following significant declines in the drug's sales. This brings us back to where we started this episode. In September 2020, Don Wooten revealed forcible and unlawful sterilization practices at one ICE detention center. Like in the case of Norplant, reproductive justice organizations and activists, along with immigrant rights and feminist organizations, 
took swift action. Monica Simpson, the executive director of Sister Song, a reproductive justice collective, said this in response to Wooten's testimony. As reproductive justice leaders and advocates committed to securing our human rights to bodily autonomy, we are horrified and angry. This brazen attack on incarcerated black and brown bodies is part of a long history of policies and programs inflicting violence and harm on migrants and immigrants seeking refuge, safety, and opportunity in this country. Forced gynecological procedures and the calculated sterilization of those incarcerated by ICE are yet another attempt to control who has children and who can make decisions about their reproduction. We know and have always known what we need and are committed to defending our bodies, our families, and our human rights. In her statement, Simpson immediately links these oppressive actions to the U.S.'s long history of forced sterilizations targeted at people of color. This is significant because it is and always has been central to the reproductive experience of marginalized populations in this country. And yet, for decades, the white-driven reproductive rights movement failed to address this issue. To redress this failure of the reproductive rights movement, the feminist movement must adopt the inclusive reproductive justice framework because true reproductive freedom includes both the right to not have a child and the right to have a child. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Step Towards Justice. Before I close, I would like to thank Tommy, Josh, Dr. Shreko, and Keisha Burke for contributing their thoughts. And of course, thank you to my co-host, Isabel Stevens. If you would like to see images and resources related to this episode, check out our Instagram account at A Step Towards Justice Podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And come back to hear our next episode, which will feature a conversation with Dr. Rebecca Todd Peters about her book, Trust Women, A Progressive Christian Argument for Reproductive Justice.